of this stupid liberal left politics and Trump will win again. Or even worse, somebody like Mike Pence, who is the true danger. He is a true fundamentalist madman. Trump is a filthy opportunist, vulgar and so on. He will win. So I think the situation is extremely serious. And everything depends on our, the left, ability not to be just fascinated by this new fascist spectrum, but to question also the liberal mainstream to which this new fascism uh, is a reply. If we don't this, if we succumb to the liberal blackmail, now is not the time for this, let's all unite behind Macron and I don't know whom and so on and so on, we are finished. I mean, all Europe will become like this new, I called it, axis of evil. From, uh, from Baltic countries through Poland, Czech, Hungary, Slovenia, Croatia, and so on. All these new nationalist countries, and so on and so on. With, the, with many on the left helping them, but this was just an introduction. Robert, come up, introduce me. Enough. I have another one, yes. Oh, you wanted two. Yeah, I wanted two, yes, yes, yes. Uh, hello, good evening. My name is Robert Faller. Uh, welcome. I think it would be good if we wait like five more minutes because I've seen that there is a lot of people still queuing up outside and maybe we can grant them a few minutes to, to get in, if that's okay with you. Or... I think it's, okay, let it be, you are the boss. But I like to begin when people are still coming, because I am at war with you. And if people are still coming, they feel guilty as if they are late, and in this way I gain a point, you know. Okay, yes. So let's pretend as if we had already started and... Uh, no, 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 it's uh, not a problem, but then you know, don't catch me if I'm one or two minutes longer. Okay, <laughs> no problem. You know what I was, okay, to pass this minute. You know, uh, uh, I think James Harvey, our dear colleague, mentioned this, that joke about, did you, the astronaut, did you meet God? Yes, but she is called and so on. I tend to say that at some level, the only way to effectively fight racism is to counteract with this kind of a joke switch. May even appear racist, but really undermine it from within. That uh, uh, the, one of the saddest things today is that in the United States, at least, the alt-right took over irony, uh, obscenity, and so on, and uh, the left is caught in this uh, crazy puritanism, and my position here is not the Catherine Deneuve position. I totally oppose her. 
Are you the Stasi agent who is bringing poisonous water? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you know, if you want an excellent analysis, I'm proud to, uh, I haven't met her, but to have her on my side. You know that in Guardian, and probably somewhere in the United States, the actress Susan Sarandon, who is one of the few who is the real left here, wrote a wonderful reply to Me Too gang. Not criticizing it for being too radical and so on, but precisely how in their pseudo-radicality they don't raise the true questions, they are not really radical and so on. Just think about, okay, are they in? Are they in? <laughs> okay, they are still coming up. I will give you one way how to analyze it. Now, I totally agree all these problems about uh, how to fight. This is a historical struggle. I'm totally for it. How to fight violence, sexual oppression, domination, and so on. But the first thing to do in all the proposals that are emerging now, what we have to do is to answer, is to confront the question, are these the real answers? Do they not contain seeds of new forms of violence? I'll give you an example. Now, what is becoming popular in United Kingdom, Scandinavian countries and United States are so-called sexual contracts. You know, I flirt with somebody and we are already getting more and more legal. It's not just we, our names, agree freely to have sex. You already have categories, you know, like uh, first you claim your religion, your age, your name, uh, do you have AIDS or whatever, I agree with this. Then it gets already more complex, like uh, condom, yes or no, anal intercourse, yes or no, the use of dirty language, yes or no. It gets very complex, uh, you know, the, the end, of course, I fully agree with it. It's emphasized that both partners in even intense sexual interplay at any moment have the right to withdraw. Sorry, I'm stepping out. Now, when I read this, to avoid a misunderstanding, I totally support it. But be aware what forms of violence this uh, implies. For example, can there be, and I know friends of both sexes of mine, to whom this happened, not to me, I'm not my own friend, and so on, but namely, <laughs> imagine that you are a lady, and in the middle of intense sexual interplay, the guy says, oh sorry, I want to withdraw, with a clear implication that, now that I see you naked, you are simply not attractive enough, and so on. Imagine the opposite act, that uh, just before uh, penetration, the woman looks at you with irony, implying, oh, yours is small and crooked. Sorry, I'm off. Don't tell me this is rare. This, from what friends are telling me, happens. Another thing. Did you notice how the very idea of sexual contract automatically privileges a certain kind of sex, which is 
casual sex, one night stands, because you know, you will not sign with your permanent partner every morning a contract or whatever. So, you know, all this implication, uh, the result is, cl is clear for me, that the very form of contract, it may be of some use, but it's not the solution. There is something wrong in this approach. Now I think we should begin. Okay? <laughs> this was what we call in rock concerts and in erotics a thought play. You know, now. <laughs> yeah, so in the spirit of comedy, I say good evening again. You know, comedy is composed of repetitions. Um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. Uh, I suppose almost everybody of you will have read texts by Slavoj Žižek, but maybe if some of you want to start with this, that would be my uh, introduction and my advice. I think this is a bit like with the jazz of John Coltrane. If you listen to the late John Coltrane, you will not so easily get access because he often alludes to certain uh, pre-established uh, motives in a very elusive way. So if you hear that, you might not grasp it immediately, but if you start with earlier John Coltrane, you will find access to the late uh, John Coltrane, and I think this is exactly the case with Zizek as well. Uh, in the later texts, many motives are just uh, nicely and tenderly touched. In the earlier texts, uh, they are a bit more extensively developed, and so in this sense, I would recommend early writings like in German book, Liebe dein Symptom wie dich selbst, or the sublime subject of ideology. Uh, I think uh, this. Uh, has noticed your falsification of the title. Okay. He said, didn't he, the sublime subject of ideology. I didn't hear this. Uh, Freudian slip. Okay, but maybe I am. Yeah, but you know, this Freudian slip is like yeah. when in front of Stalin somebody says, instead of long live Stalin, long live Trotsky, you know, like. Uh, <laughs> You are just aware what type of sleep you absolutely. are doing. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry. So, uh, the guilty object uh, uh, leaves the stage. So, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> Later, if there is any time, please join me to moderate the debate. Okay. Again, very quickly, I'm sorry for my uh, this stupid face. I cannot help it. And point two. Don't be too disappointed. You will get, you got, and you will get tomorrow excellent detailed analysis of Lubitsch films. For example, the first, the, let's call it branch session tomorrow. Uh, Alenka and Mladen will do the real thing, which is Berlin Lubitsch, the two early films. I will just follow my title and do what? I would like to begin with uh, Adorno, who said uh, that uh, one has to turn around Benedetto Croce's patronizing question about what is dead and what is alive in Hegel's philosophy. Adorno claims if Hegel is still a living thinker for us, then the question to be raised today is the opposite one. Not what does Hegel mean to us, 
in our eyes today, but the opposite question, what are we in the eyes of Hegel? Uh, and I think exactly the same holds for Lubitsch. The question should not be, in our postmodern cynical times, uh, is there still something that speaks to us in Lubitsch's films, but how would our contemporary situation appear in the eyes of Lubitsch? And this is, I think, the actuality of Lubitsch, while, of course, rejecting with disgust populist neo-racism, Lubitsch would have immediately perceived also the falsity of its main opponent, the politically correct moralism, clearly seeing their hidden complicity. Lubitsch would have been appalled to notice how the perverse pleasures of... You can't of stay here, you can't stay here. Sorry? Ah, sorry, yeah, yeah. Mm. Of, obscen how obscenities, irony even, have moved to the right while the left is more and more caught in pathetic, ascetic, puritan moralism. What this means is simply that there is no renewal of the left without a little bit touch. I will try to develop this. No, you can't stand Where are we today? In the West, at least, we are becoming massively aware of the extent of coercion and exploitation in sexual relations. However, we should bear in mind also that purpose use this provocative term when they objectify themselves to seduce them, they don't do it offering themselves as passive objects. They are the active agents of their own objectivization, manipulating men, playing ambiguous games, including the full right to step out of the game at any moment, even if, uh, even if to the male gaze, this appears in contradiction with their previous signals. This active role of women is their freedom which bothers so much all kinds of fundamentalists, from Muslims who recently prohibited in some countries women touching and playing with bananas and other fruit which resembles penis. To our own male chauvinists who explode in violence against a woman who first provokes them and then rejects uh, his, the one whom she provoked, advances. Feminism, uh, feminism, feminine sexual liberation is not a puritan withdrawal from being objectivized a sexual object for men, but the right to actively play with self-objectivization, offering yourself and withdrawing at will. Will it be still possible to proclaim these facts? Again, this is my first central thesis. I want to claim to objectify yourself, to breast seductively provoke men sexually. But in all freedom that you are the agent that you can withdraw at any moment, 
This is the big result. All conservatives like this Puritan women know I don't want to become an object and so on and so on. Why not? But with all freedom to dominate the game, to manipulate men, whatever you want and so on and so on. So, yes, sex uh, 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 is traversed by power games, violent obscenities and so on. But the difficult thing is to admit that it's immanent to sex. Some perspicuous observers have already noticed how the only term of sexual, the only form of sexual relationship that fully meets the politically correct criteria would have been a contract drawn between two sadomasochist partners. The rights of political correctness and the rights of violence are two sides of the same coin. Insofar as the basic premise of political correctness is the reduction of sexuality to contractual mutual consent, Jean-Claude Milner was right to point out uh, how the anti-harassment movement unavoidably reaches its climax in contracts which stipulate even extreme forms of sadomasochism, treating a person like a dog on a, on a, on a collar, slave trading, torture, up to consented uh, killing. In, is such, in such forms of consensual slavery, the market freedom of contract negates itself. Slave trade becomes the ultimate assertion of freedom. It is as if the motive of Kant with Sabbath becomes reality in an unexpected, in an unexpected way. So, how would Lubitsch counteract this tendency? Of course, the answer is through what you people usually refer to as comic indirectness. So, how does this work? After the extent of the Nazi atrocities became known to the broad public, we already talked about this here, Louis is to be or not to be, as well as Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator, were both criticized for downplaying the horrors of Nazism by a way of making comedy out of it. Chaplin even said that if he were to know of the horrors of concentration camps, he would never have shot his killer. However, the situation is, I think, much more complex and ambiguous. Isn't it that in a tragedy, victims retain a minimum of dignity? Which is why when horror uh, exceeds a certain limit, to portray it as a tragedy is a blasphemous downplaying of its extent. In Auschwitz or in Gulag, victims were to such an extent deprived of their human dignity that they can no longer be perceived as tragic heroes. Instead of it, 
a certain amount of comedy enters. Not comedy where you laugh, but objective comedy. Comedy which reflects the met inversions of social reality itself. Incidentally, just I return for a brief moment to political correctness. A critical analysis of the usual complaint, you know, when some people said, but okay, Harvey Weinstein is horrible, what he did, but Louis C.K., who just masturbated in front of a couple of women who were his admirers, you cannot put them at the same level. Some feminists brutally answered that who are the men to tell us when we feel hurt? For some of us, somebody masturbating in front of us can be as traumatic as being raped, blackmailed, and so on and so on. What matters is how we feel it. And that's the word that I all too often hear in this Me Too debate. It matters how we feel it. I cannot imagine a more anti-feminist prejudice. You know what's the implication of this line of argumentation? It's the old Cartesian anti-feminism. The Cartesian theory of sexual difference in his uh, minor text is that while men can elevate themselves above their emotions, feelings to reason, women remain hooked to, cannot rise above their feelings. <coughs> so, I find it very tragicomic to hear now this feeling as the ultimate criterion and so on and so on. It doesn't matter how it is, what matters is if I feel threatened and so on and so on. Not to mention that such an elevation of feeling into ultimate criterion totally uh, negates uh, Freudian psychoanalysis. But I'm sorry for this detour. Back to my main uh, idea. Uh, things are similar in Stalinism. I'm sorry. Uh, is, uh, uh, can one imagine a more terrifying case of what Hegel, Hegel called objective humor than that of Stalinism, or the comical reversal of great emancipatory hopes in the Soviet Union into a self-destructive terrorist violence of Stalinist purpose. Was in this sense Stalin not the big jokester of the 20th century, and is in our time individual freedom freedom of choice, <laughs> also not a joke where truth is the desperate situation of a precarious worker. I found this extremely comical in the saddest sense. How? You are a precarious worker, you are never sure, will you, be, uh, will you have health insurance, whatever, and then media are telling you but that's your new freedom. Isn't it wonderful? You can recreate yourself. Uh, Neoliberals here talk, use the language of Judith Butler. You can deconstruct, reconstruct yourself performative every couple of months and so on and so on. Uh, in view of the fact that the greatest cultural product of the Stalinist era were political jokes, 
Ein Tactic to paraphrase, again paraphrase Brecht. What is even the best anti-Stalinist joke compared to the joke that is Stalinist politics itself? And of course, the same goes for Trump and so on and so on. Should we be then really surprised at one of the jokes, here I try to provoke you, but Alenka's advantage who is here gave me the data of some Bosnian uh, social linguist who is studying this. One of the jokes from popular among the survivors of Srebrenica massacre, you remember in mid-90s, where the whole city of Bosnians was slaughtered. Uh, the joke goes like this. To understand this joke, you have to remember that decades ago, when in ex-Yugoslavia, when one went to the butcher to buy beef, for example, the butcher uh, uh, automatically asked you with or without bones, because if you wanted to use meat for soup, you usually added some bones. So uh, the joke goes like this. After the war, a survivor returns from Germany to Srebrenica to buy a piece of land to build a house there. He earned some money in Germany. So he asks a friend about the price of land. And the friend answers, referring of course to the bones there, of, the, of those who were killed, it depends, do you want land with bones or without bones? Be careful. This is not a joke of others about Srebrenica. This is a joke of survivors themselves. And I think it has a deep message. The message is, sorry, but it's still too horrible for us to play the tragic, the role of a tragic victim and uh, confront it seriously. Such terrifying jokes are the only way for us to deal with it. Along similar lines, I remember years ago here in Berlin, I met Wolf Biermann, who told me one experience of him, and it's really an obscene reversal, worthy of concentration camp Erhard from to be or not to be. You all remember this disgusting uh, defense of Hitler, which was popular in some circles after World War II. True, Hitler did some horrible things, like killing the Jews, but he also did some good things, like building highways, made, uh, making trains run of time, on time, and so on and so on. <laughs> now, Birman told me that after the Wende, he was in some part of East Germany debating with some green ecologists, and there was also a small group of neo-Nazi ecologists. And he said they existed. In the same way that you know that there are pro-Trump, alt-right uh, LGBT people. They claim we are alt-right because only in our Western civilization LGBT orientation can be fully acknowledged, and so on. Okay, so um, he told me, German, that when he reproached them, but with the meaning, you are for Hitler, neo-Nazis. You know, the answer he got, it's 
aircraft at the US? The answer was uh, no. We are deeply critical of Hitler. True, he did some good things, like getting rid of the Jews. But he also did many horrible things to nature, like building highways. <laughs> you know, this is how in a Lubitsch comedy about Nazism shot today, this is how it would work. So, uh, but again, uh, does this fact also not point to the limit of the Lubitsch approach for us today? We more and more experience how what was for Lubitsch still a joke is now simply enacted in real political and ideological life. So many examples were already given yesterday and today. So maybe Lubitsch type of jokes only works when we still have the liberal hypocrisy to mock. <laughs> But what about our era when power exerts itself brutally, dropping the liberal, humanitarian, democratic mask? One is almost tempted to say, bring us, us back this hypocritical mask, so that hypocritical as it is, we at least have some positive standards. However, I think Lubitsch would have been well aware that such a direct dropping the mask uh, uh, is always a fake. I want to make now a short reference to 1960s. Remember that this year we will be celebrating 50 years of 68. In the 60s, it was fashionable to assert perversion against the compromise of hysteria. This was incidentally the secret male chauvinist dominance in 68. The idea was hysterics, usually we mean, just provoke the master, they don't want really to destroy the master. When a hysterical subject criticizes a master, it's always ambiguously also a call for a new master, while perversion openly does it, overthrows the master, everything is permitted, and so on, and so on. So a pervert openly does what a hysteric only brings about. In other words, the pervert effectively moves beyond the master and his law. Why? The hysteric merely provokes the master. Against this view, Freud and Lacan consistently emphasize that perversion, far from being subverted, is the hidden obverse of power. Every power needs perversion as its inherent transgression that sustains it. What do I mean by this? Ah, my first example, and it will shock you, it's not even a clip, it's a photo. Two photos from a hotel in Skopje, Macedonia, and I love this hotel, where uh, I was a couple of months ago with my wife, I am huge fan smoker, so the attic is after smoking rooms. And the answer we got from the receptionist was, 
law of practice, you have law of course it's prohibited to smoke uh, by the law, but you have uh, ashtrays in the room, so this is not a problem. <laughs> and this was not the end to our surprises. When we entered the room, there was effectively a glass ashtray, a couple of them, near the bed, uh, on the table, and on the bottom of these ashtrays, there was an image painted, the standard smoking is prohibited image. If you don't believe it, people claim, oh, you invented this to be paradoxical. No. And uh, to make things even clearer, let's go up. Sorry, I hope this works. Uh, uh, sorry? Ah, I, Okay. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. Okay, uh, I have asked a script. Sorry, I will immediately go on. I, with this one, Mark? Sorry, uh, I'm getting... Sorry? Ah, yes, I'm here. And even to add insult to injury, this is what we got then near the bedside. So, <laughs> and the ashtray. I think this is the best metaphor for our situation uh, for our situation today. It's no longer that's what surprised me. It's no longer as it was a couple of uh, years ago in countries open towards smokers, you know. Like they told you you cannot smoke, but they whisper to you. If you do it discreetly, open a window a little bit, uh, and uh, 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 there, stand there and smoke there, it's okay. No, it's like openly admitted, treated as a no contradiction. And I claim that in our political life, we are getting more and more of the same. Like, you remember the debate on torture. Wouldn't you get from CIA or FBI the same answer? We don't torture, and here you have the, the manual for waterboarding or whatever, you know. Or, I remember when I was serving the Yugoslav army in 75, a wonderful, I'm sorry getting lost in this, but it's ideology, it's purest. How ideology effectively works. Uh, uh, we had, like, in the morning classes, one hour this, one hour that, and the first class one morning was not social theory, but legal system rules, and we were taught uh, this. Uh, elementary rules of war, like, I don't know if you know this, but according to Geneva Convention, it's prohibited to shoot at a parachutist before he touches land. Okay, we learned this. <laughs> it was a wonderful, divinely preordained coincidence. Next class was about a gun, our handgun. I mean, how to do things with it, and the topic of that day was, of course, how to shoot a parachute. <laughs> you know, how you 
measures the strength of the wind, the direction of the fall, and so on and so on. And the wonderful thing that happened was that it was was that there was one idiot, not me, but it could have been me, asked the officer, who was the same officer. Uh, but sorry, but is there not a slight contradiction between what you are teaching us now and what you were teaching us the previous hour? And he got a wonderful answer. It was, you seem to be an intellectual, but are you completely stupid? Don't you understand anything? And so on and so on. So again, I, I think that uh, this, this is how... This is, again, for me, uh, uh, the, the way perversion works, you know. This is the law and perversion. Every law needs uh, perversion behind it. So, uh, back to Lubitsch. Uh, we may claim was now I need to, of course, defend Lubitsch, because the first suspicion would be here that we all his innuendos and so on, double entendre, secret transgressions, that Lubitsch was basically doing the same thing. No wonder that he didn't have any great problems with face code. That Lubitsch simply, uh, sorry, uh, uh, just accepted the system, but hinted at or staged its perverse background. My point is no. My point is that, of course, the Hollywood case code was an extremely perverted system. It wasn't just the explicit ideology. It was the explicit ideology and its perverse background. Both together, in a very elaborated, codified way. Permit me to repeat two of my old, not jokes, but you will see the clips. Because I wanted really to show you two clips. I've written a lot of times about this in my books to make you feel ideology in classical Hollywood. The first one is the scene two thirds into Casablanca. Remember when, in the night, Ingrid Bergman <coughs> comes to Humphrey Bogart, <coughs> to Rick's Café, his office upstairs, to get those famous uh, Portuguese visas or whatever, exit visas, so that they can take the flight to Lisbon from Casablanca. And then, uh, the clip is a classical one, it's very short. They talk, we have this typical noir conversation, uh, like she pulls a gun at him and he says, uh, kill me, shoot, you're doing me a favor, whatever, or the water. And then they embrace. And then you have three minutes and a half of passage fade out to the tower of Casablanca airport and then back to the two of them. Okay? Let's hope that I will be more lucky this time. Ah, okay, I Okay, now comes the first clip. Let's pray.
Now, of course, for all normal Christian people, the question they did it. <laughs> or the same conversation goes on. And I'm referring here to a guy who wrote a very good book on Hollywood called Richard Moldby, who, with a, on a long 30 pages analysis, demonstrated how the scene is not simply ambiguous, but it gives two levels of clear signals. On the one hand, there are clear signals in Hollywood case code way that they did it. First, when a couple embraces kissing and you have a fade out, it means sex follows. <laughs> Second thing, uh, uh, after, do you notice, when you return to the conversation, Humphrey Bogart uh, smokes a cigarette. Another trick, before you a drink after a cigarette, another rule. Not to mention the vulgar association, the tower, phallus, whatever you want. <laughs> then you have a whole series of indications that they didn't do it. The same conversation seems to go on, they're fully dressed, and so on and so on. So, Moldy's interpretation is that there is nothing subversive in this implication they did it. Hollywood ideology is both levels at the same time. It is as if Hollywood addresses you, the spectator, as a normal hypocrite. It, as if you are under control of some moral agency for whom you should not be doing it. And it tells you, I will tell you exactly what is happening, but I will provide a mask so that if some moral agency addresses you, how can you dream about them doing it? You can always say, sorry, nothing happened, look there, and so on and so on. But you see my point, both levels at the same time are it. That's my uh, first point. Then, of course, uh, but I will try to prove Lewis is not doing this. He is not playing this boring game. Although later, in the 60s, for example, when Hayscote ended, there was another apparently more perverted way of indicating things, which I claim, if anything, is even more disgusting. Namely, a scene that I also often mention, I cannot resist playing it here for you, a scene from, my God, the greatest movie of all times, popular even in North Korea, played there all the time, The Sound of Music. When I was in Yugoslavia, still, we had a sensor who was an absolute genius. The whole film was shown the way it was, just one small song was cut out. And the censor did the right thing. It, you remember, uh, Sister Maria escapes being in love with the uh, count, uh, uh, escapes trap, from trap, escapes to my monastery back, but is still bothered by sexual desires and visits her nun superior to complain, to be more punished. Like, oh, mother, tell me what to do. I still dream about him. It's horrible. Punish me more. Punish me more. And then the absolute obscenity. I was shocked. Sister tells her, uh, monastery is not a place to escape. 
You must confront your desires, see for what you are made. So, in not so nice words, she tells her, go back and seduce and screw the guy and seduce <laughs> the And then she, the sister, elaborates this in a song which is so oh, directly obscene that I am even now embarrassed to listen to it. <laughs> the beginning tells it all, climb every mountain. <laughs> secretly 
violent. The very core of ideology are these violations, which are also strictly codified, and so on. But again, Lubitsch is not doing this. Why not? I will not explain with an example of Lubitsch, but from another TV series. Lubitsch was, you know, he was obsessed by the dogs. One of the stupid actresses, maybe you James know, I don't even know which one, didn't she complain that Lubitsch directs dogs instead of actors? <laughs> and, but Lubitsch is here much more refined. It's not, he is not using the dogs to indicate, to remain focused on what happens behind the door. He, as it were, uh, eroticizes the door itself. If you tear down the door, you lose everything. You lose the tension itself. Let me give you here another example from a contemporary film, relatively, 10-15 years back. Again, I've written a lot about it, but maybe you will like it, which I like. Namely, it's a, a, a modest working class comedy, brass off, where a girl and a guy, one of the, one of the stories, flirt, the guy accompanies her home, and then in front of her apartment building, she invites him to come up. But how? It's a very short clip, let's do it. Ah, very short, so please. Do you want to come up for a coffee? I don't drink coffee. <laughs> I haven't got any. <laughs> it's so simple, so vulgar even. But it is, I think, the Lubitsch style. Why? Because First, can you imagine the vulgarity, non-erotic, if they would have spoken openly, like she telling him, why don't you come up and fuck the brain out of me, and she gets angry or whatever. The point is just not, it's not even hinted, the sexual invitation. The very form of dialogue, this wonderful nonsense, you make an offer, and then you deny it, like, come for a coffee, by the way, I have no coffee or whatever. This form is itself eroticized. And this is what Lubitsch knew how it was doing, how, how to do, how. Let me give you another example from a series, here I have a great disagreement with my friend Robert Faller, who likes sex and the city, and I don't. But I admit, as a concession to you, that in one episode there are some details which are absolutely correct. Miranda, the relatively ugly girl, uh, has uh, uh, an affair with a guy, and uh, the guy likes to talk dirty all the time, and even solicits her to talk dirty. No sexual obscenities and so on. Like, you can tell everything you want. First, she is too restrained, and then, finally, she accepts the game. But, in a wonderful detail, she then says something which she shouldn't have mentioned. It's not even a very dirty detail. She tells him, do you, uh, 
I noticed how you liked during when you asked me during the act, how you enjoyed if I put my finger into your asshole and so on. It was too much, too embarrassing for him. It's over. And I think, uh, you know, stop, uh, these are the true details that matter. And here, perversion lies. I cannot pull it now clinically, but I tested it my friend. All the perverts who can this fuck your mother, fuck two dogs at the same time. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, but it's always some... You know, you always have to look for, but just don't do this. Something is prohibited. And this is how sexuality works. Some things of course, shouldn't be done. Some things shouldn't be talked about and not done. Some things you should say, but the crucial details, things, you should just do them, but not talk about them. And they are not the mega secrets or whatever. They are just what Lacan calls symptoms, symptoms, basic formations of elementary excessive enjoyment which should remain uh, which should remain unspoken. Uh, uh, so uh, the next so uh, again uh, I'm sorry I claim uh, that's why Ludwig resisted this pornography that's totally open ourselves and so on and so on. Because he knew that the only way to hint at this embarrassing detail is by not showing it. By not showing it all there, the details of the forum itself. For example, it may be well, well possible that in that scene from Brust Off, the guy would have been shocked at her answer, but I don't have any coffee. That would have been too much for him, in its very uh, non-sexual innocence and so on and so on. So let's go a step further. Uh, 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 Ludwig was also aware, that's another point of this Ludwig's indirectness, paradoxically, you know, Ludwig too the basic lesson of Freud. The oppressed is not simply what is deep there masked. The really repressed verdrängte inscribed itself into the very process of repression. Like when you try to hide things, not to say them directly, in the very form of indirectness, the true secret is implied there. Another thing that Lubitsch was aware is what I call the constitutive alienation, and it was already mentioned by you, Robert, and others. How, for Lubitsch, a couple in sexual game is never alone. Robert mentioned this afternoon, this game of how uh, you fall in love by falling into the trap of, of uh, falling into how other perceive, others perceive you as already in love. In this sense, love can arise out of a pure misunderstanding. Classical is here the beginning of an hour with you, when a couple find themselves uh, 
accidentally in a taxi. They are both married, but not to each other. And one tells to the other, my God, somebody may mistake us as if we are a bored married couple ignoring each other. From that point, you know you are doomed. I mean, they are doomed. They, are, they will be together. And uh, I think that this element, you see it. This is one of the elements of Lubitsch universe. You see it in all its brutality. In one early movie, which is very ambiguous, but wonderful for me, nonetheless, The Broken Lullaby. It's one of the most obscene films that I can imagine. Uh, the hero of the film uh, is a French soldier haunted by the memory of a guy he shot on the front on the last day of war, and this German guy he killed is Walter Kölderly, very strange name. Uh, then what happens is that he finds a letter there of the dead German soldier and after the war is obsessed by him, visits in a small German town. His family finds father, mother and the fiancé, a girl, and the two of them fall in love. Then at the end he finally tells her because before he is lying, but listen, I cannot stay here, I, I killed your fiancé, your boyfriend. And now you will see the two very short clips, something extremely perverted happens. <laughs> she, the girl, tells him, but the boys, the killed soldiers' parents, love you so much, you are for them like the return of their son, that for that sake, we have to remain together and live together and husband and wife for them. It's direct idea that it doesn't matter how we feel. Obviously they do have love for each other, but it has to be mediated by the other's gaze. So then you will see, after this conversation, the final scene, just a minute, where he the French guy is playing the dead soldier's violin for her and for the parents who watch, and watch them with tears and so on. It is total... Okay, let's do it. This is the last clip, then I just finish.
of uh, okay. What I wanted to emphasize here is that here we have an element of the Lubic universe, but it's not yet part of the Lubic stuff of the comedy. But it's crucial to see how he needs comedy Lubic because otherwise you would have to confront this horror. This is horror what happens here. But uh, and then now I want to go on into these forms of indirectness. Here we have again indirectness, because it's very ambiguous, of course. Does the couple really want to live together and they just need the parents as an excuse of they are doing for their gays and so on? Or, or not? I claim it doesn't matter. Love is necessarily mediated in this way. And also, uh, it was already mentioned here James in his yesterday's first talks uh, uh, from around the corner. Do you know that uh, coming from ex-Yugoslavia, I cannot restrain myself from telling you this, that exactly a similar situation happened immediately after the war was over, the siege of Sarajevo, in mid-1990s. It really happened. It was the newspapers in Sarajevo. Uh, but I think, in a way, it brought Lubic to extreme. A married couple was bored by each other. And each of them privately engaged with anonymously in a, uh, how do you call it, internet affair. Just talking anonymously with a partner. And understood him and her with a partner very well. All their emotional life was there. They ignored each other. Finally, each of them decided to meet the partner. They did the standard thing, okay, in that cafeteria, I will have that hat on, you will have that book, whatever. And you can guess what they discovered. They were the same, husband and wife. Now, how would Lubitsch read this? I think he would be horrified. It wouldn't work. The solution is not, oh, but we are the dreamy partner of each other. No, a certain gap would have been closed, it would have been a catastrophe. Now comes a truly problematic part. Now, in the spirit of political correctness, I would have to add a trigger warning. Uh, my friends drew my attention to it, and I openly admitted that I checked it myself, that in hardcore pornography, when they depict a sexual act, there is something that you may call, Louis would never have done it. But something I think Lubitsch would have noticed if he were to be forced to work that. <laughs> there is some, let's call it, elementary shot, which is, I cannot show it to you, I'm well embarrassed. <laughs> the following one. Woman lying on her back with her legs up, spread apart, and the man in front of her, you see just his back, penetrating her, but now comes the crucial details. Uh, her legs, my God, it must be so difficult to stay with this. Her legs are spread apart in such a way that between her legs, while you see the guy penetrating her, her back, his, from his back only, you see her face. And she is looking into 
the camera directly and play, uh, okay, I will not show it, full <laughs> pressure and so on. You see, the third one, we have to be there. And this thing teaches us a lot. First, it's absolutely not true that women are objectified in hardcore. In the standard hardcore, men are objectified. Men, you don't even see his face in this film that I've seen. He just a machine. He can't bam bam bam, nobody cares. He never looks into the camera. Woman has to look into the camera, and it's something, I think, much more horrible than objectivization. It's a false and false subjectivization. Which is why it's totally wrong to claim that as a spectator of hardcore pornography, you look at, you look at, uh, you uh, look at it identifying with the man who is doing it to a woman. No, you identify yourself to your case as a pure witness. What you are looking for is a proof that of woman's enjoyment. What arouses you is not your enjoyment, but the woman should demonstrate it that she enjoys it. And I think, again, this is a much more humiliating strategy of humiliating women than direct objectivization. And it affected it. If you just, it doesn't work without this gaze, which incidentally violates the basic rule. Like, you know, if it's not a subjective thought, the actor is not allowed to look into the camera. Here you have, it is allowed, and you spectators are directly included, but included as a pure observer. And I think that this is uh, literally a uh, constitutive of sexuality as such. That's why, if you allow just a couple of concluding remarks, that's why I think one thing is sure. Ludwig would have been horrified by our drug culture for theoretical reasons. As a French theorist, Laurent de Souter, Souter demonstrated chemistry in each scientific version is becoming part of us. Large aspects of our lives are characterized by the management of our emotions by drugs from everyday use of sleeping pills and antidepressants to hard narcotics. We are not just controlled by impenetrable social powers. Our very emotions are outsourced to chemical stimulation. The stakes of these chemical interventions are double and contradictory. We use drugs to keep external excitement, shocks, anxieties, and so on, under control, that is to say, to desynthesize us for them and, and to get, generate artificial excitement if we are depressed and lack desire, and so on. Drugs thus react to the two opposed threats to our daily lives, overexcitement and depression. And it's crucial to notice how these two uses of drugs relate to the couple of private and public. In the developed Western countries, our public lives are more and more, they more and more lack collective excitement, 
exemplarily provided by genuine political engagement, while drugs supplant this lack with private or rather intimate forms of excitement. Drugs perform the euthanasia of public life and the artificial excitation of private life. Now, not to lose too much of your time, I would like just to point out that here, nonetheless, we maybe encounter... So, Lubitsch's answer to this is not drugs, because in drugs you precisely lose this indirectness, which is inscribed into uh, sexuality. But how does this indirectness work? I claim, I cannot develop it, I don't want to go for too long, that there is a fundamental ambiguity here in Lubitsch. Let's take what is, for me at least, maybe, and for Lubitsch himself, his masterpiece, uh, Trouble in Paradise. On the one hand, the message of his films can be seen as a kind of a cynical wisdom. Don't, don't take the ruling ideology too seriously, enjoy small transgressions, and so on, and so on. And this is what I find problematic. You find this, for example, I see in it the ultimate lesson of heaven can wait. Basically, you know the situation of Noborio devil is presented as a good, wise God. Devil is the one who knows we need small sins and so on. So devil sent the hero who was living, who was a very good person but living a promiscuous life and so on, says, <coughs> sorry, we don't have time for people like you here, like this basic tolerance. Don't be too fanatical and so on and so on. I, I don't like this reading of Lubitsch as uh, honest, benevolent, liberal, horrified at uh, excesses and so on and so on. Because already in to be or not to be, and I'm here referring very briefly to to uh, Aaron Schuster and to James Carvey who were here, they pointed out the ambiguity of this situation, Yella my wife described it in the morning, of the couple of uh, thieves, uh, uh, Lily and Gaston, and then the other couple, Gaston and uh, Madame Collet. The, para the first paradox is that the uh, uh, the first paradox is that in a way, where is the paradise when the movie talks about traveling paradise? Obviously, paradise is the life of crime and theft and so on that the poor couple in bed. And I like this idea that the temptation enters the game in the guise of a beautiful, rich woman who wants marriage, and so on, and so on. But no, at the end, and this is what I don't like, the result is, I claim, in its very apparent subversiveness, a very pretty conservative one. It, don't dream about that, be a good conservative thief, leave your small transgressions, uh, and so on, and so on. It's wisdom. 
and prayer. I can all of Ludwig be reduced to this. Now, if you just uh, 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 allow me to uh, go, uh, sorry, uh, to go a step further. Now, really to conclude, uh, 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 the also Ninochka. I'm a little bit troubled by that film because it can be read in that way. That uh, okay. It's not even so critical, totally, of Soviet, but nonetheless, Soviet Union, a land of fanaticism and so on and so on, and the heroine slowly discovers these everyday pleasures of the decadent West fashion and so on and so on. Mm. Uh, it's not as simple as that, but my problem is what with this one? In, at least in some you have nonetheless wonderful hints at a more radical, potentially even a more radical political stance. For example, the key shot, I didn't want to bore you with too many clips, the key moment of traveling paradise is the conflict between Gaston and Madame Collet, where Gaston explodes in rage about, like, you know, you denounce me to the police, but not your... Uh, your uh, 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 bank manager or whatever who is a big thief and so on. And this is not cynical wisdom. I want just to focus on this. This is genuine rage. It's an explosion of rage. At another level, even in Clooney Brown, and I'm grateful to Alenka Zupantic who pointed out this, at some moment in this, all these wonderful innuendos, when Clooney talks about how you fix uh, when uh, a plumbing doesn't work. He makes a statement with, with clear political revolutionary implications. She says, yes, sometimes you can just do it a little bit, but sometimes you can just, you should just break all down or whatever, something like that. Why? This does not exclude Ludwig's apparent benevolent cynicism. I want here to draw a comparison between Ludwig and one of the big Central European writers, Jaroslav Hasek, you know, who wrote the good soldier Schweik. Usually, Schweik is read as a model of this benevolence, you know, don't take it seriously, make fun, and so on and so on. But in a very Ludwigian way, I can imagine a Ludwig hero doing this. You know, there is one episode in Schweik, which is wonderful. Uh, when Schweik goes to the front, Austrian soldiers here, Russians on the other side, Russians start to shoot at them. And you know what Schweik does? He stands up, starts to wave, and says, don't shoot, there are people here, don't shoot, and so on. This is the Leninist moment. This is enacting when Lenin said we should promote fraternizing on the front and so on and so on. But now I come to my point. Isn't it strange that the very writer who is perceived as this benevolent humanity, don't go too far, uh, have, oh, be open for human weaknesses and so on. You know what? Me is missing in this picture, and I read a biography of her. Okay, in 22 or then, I don't know, he returned to Prague and wrote all this. You know, when he was a couple of years earlier in Russia, 
fighting for the Bolsheviks as a politcommissar of an entire division in Siberia. That's the, that's the truth of it. And uh, maybe my hope is not to turn us, uh, I'm not so naive, into a uh, Bolshevik, but nonetheless, since I am a radical leftist, I hope I will convince you to find a place for him even in the radical left. And now I'm doing like in Hollywood case code, radical left, read communist uh, universe. You know, let's do, and now I'm at the end, let's do an experiment. Imagine the final scene of Heaven Can Wait, where, uh, uh, you know, uh, the devil and uh, the hero of the film comes to the devil, tries to convince, basically he admits it. Sorry, I belong to hell, I am... Uh, I was living a sinful life, and Daniel says, no, sorry, hell is not a place for you. Maybe go up to the other place, you will find there, maybe have a, a small room in the backlog or whatever. I, let's imagine a similar scene. Lubitsch in Soviet Union, arrested, of course, by KGB, and confronting a commissar who decides, Gulag or not. Let's imagine that this commissar is played by Bela Lugosi, as in Ninovska. <laughs> and Lubitsch, knowing about his sin, says, you know what, uh, I admit it, I deserve Gulag. Look, I like bourgeois pleasures, jokes, sex, and so on, <laughs> irony. And in the same way as the devil, that's my dream, uh, does it, the commissar says, hey, 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 I was just reading Lenin, and sorry, you don't belong to Gulag. There is a place for you on the very top of our edifice. How would he read it? You know that Lenin, in the last years of his life, and I know Lenin did many things unacceptable for us to do, I'm not trying to simply redeem him, but it's very interesting that in the last two years of his life, Lenin became aware of how dangerous the situation is. He focuses his wrath on Stalin, but in what way? Nikola Lubitsch said in an interview that his father, Ernst, if he hated something, found it the lowest ethically, it was a lack of hesitation, politeness, gentleness. This is a permanent motive in last Lenin's letters. You remember the famous attack on uh, Stalin in Lenin's so-called uh, uh, testimony. All Lenin's, I will not read it, not to lose time, criticism of Stalin is about manners. It's not Stalin has the wrong political line or whatever, it's Comrade Stalin is too rude, he doesn't have manners. How to treat comrades and so on. Even more, it's not just this general point. Now comes the true, uh, 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 now comes the true wonder. Uh, 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 at the end of his life, Lenin had a crazy idea. He saw where things are going, 
he still was an authoritarian, he wanted all the power to the Bolshevik party, but he saw the need to somebody to control the party itself. And then he came to this crazy idea that it's unworkable, but it's beautiful, that for a central control commission elected freely at the party congress without any control from central committee, which would be allowed to control with real power all the ruling structures, Politburo, Central Committee, government. And the way Lenin describes the working of this body is nice. He says, I quote Lenin here, he says, this body should resort, quote from Lenin, to some semi-humorous tricks, uh, cunning devices, pieces of trickery or something of that sort. Semi-humorous trick to express, to expose something ridiculous, something harmful, and so on and so on. So again, it's not a kagebe terror, it's that even the top of the party should have a body above, uh, okay. Let now you see my point. Should have, uh, should have uh, some kind of a mega ironist who makes jokes, fun in a polite way, and so on and so on. And you got my point. <laughs> Maybe in my, I'm sorry, communist dream, Lubitsch should be on the top of the Central Control <laughs> Committee. Now he will take, but it's naive. Uh, Bolsheviks would never allow this. Uh, even for Lenin, this would have been too much. Uh, here I'm a Hegelian. You know, Hegel says in the introduction to this phenomenologie des Geistes that if some, something does not fit its measure, then you have to change the measure itself. So my point would have been if Ludwig, as head of this control commission would have been unacceptable for Lenin, then we need to change not Lubitsch but Lenin. Because only somebody with these manners and so on can save us today. Now we will say I'm crazy. <coughs> I mean, we have serious problems and so on who talks about manners. No, we live in times today when what the right wing is doing, open racism and so on, where, again, we are on the opposite side from 68, when, you know, revolutionary students like to be rough, like using dirty words and so on and so on. Now, the right wingers are doing it. And now, we, the left, need to rehabilitate politeness and what you, James, were talking about, in religious terms, this respect for ordinary people, and so on and so on. The left should shamelessly say, sorry guys, we, not you, are the moral majority. Not the fundamentalist one, but the Lubitsch moral majority. Today, Lubitsch, can you imagine with this ironic Leninist way, semi-humorous tricks, how Lubitsch would have discarded, ruined, uh, false liberals, uh, conservatives, and so on and so on. As Lenin 
knew how serious this was for letting my God. This was a matter for survival. That's why politically we need a Lubitsch today. Thank you very much. start our discussion uh, since you seemed not satisfied with Lubitsch's devil in Heaven Can Wait. Uh, I would but, uh, to manipulate, I agree here with James Harvey who also, I like to hide behind authorities, who also told me that he hates Heaven Can Wait. Uh, so <laughs> I would uh, like to ask you, would you like the following devil? You know, it's a little story, Mr. Müller, average German guy, is sent to hell. Uh, he rings the doorbell, uh, the door opens, and a very polite young man uh, shows up and says, Mr. Müller, welcome. You know, I am the devil here. I am uh, the host. Uh, please come in. I hope you will feel fine here. Here is our wellness uh, area, and there are the tennis courts, and we have uh, excellent sports facilities, and we have a library with all the books that are forbidden, but also loud ones, and we have wonderful cinemas, and if any movie is missing, please put it to the wish list, and we have a couple of wonderful restaurants, so please uh, feel welcome, and if anything should uh, be missing, please uh, complain, and we will try to fix it. And Mr. Müller is a bit surprised, and uh, then all of a sudden see, he sees in the background there are some barracks, and there seems to be fire inside, and he says, can we also see those facilities? And the devil is not very willing to show, but he leads him there, and then Mr. Müller, of course, sees what he expected. There are big bowls with soup, and naked poor people are thrown into them, and little devils with... Forks are pinching them, and uh, Mr. Müller is a bit shocked and says, "And, and uh, Mr. Devil, what is this here?" And the, the devil shakes his shoulders and says, "I don't know. The Christian people wanted to have this here." <laughs> now it will okay. Let's not lose time with this because we don't have time to develop it. But uh, uh, I think this even fits my story that I mentioned yesterday. Mm. It must be pretty boring, this stupid hell of yours. I think that maybe they really enjoy there in that fire. And you know, the true attraction is there. I would, if I were to be Mr. Miller, I would say one-way ticket to hell. <laughs> I have no problem with that. Okay. Because, you know, it is as if, why can you see that part? Your devil is too good, he is manipulating. He knows that people would be bought here, so you have to have this bad help there, and so on. On the other hand, you know, like, uh, my God, hell is the only way where you can thrive. I want real hell, it's suffering, and so on. I mean, look at uh, Dante. Who reads heaven? It's one of the most boring things you can imagine. The second part, how to call it, vice, or what, no, what's that? Between hell and heaven is... That capitalist invention. Uh, yeah, biggest yeah. biggest fire in German. I don't know how to say that in English. Yes. Purgatory. Purgatory, yes. But you know that this is literally a capitalist early invention. 
when uh, after the year of 1000, the idea came, came we have a place in between where you work a little bit and play for your team, so that <laughs> you go out. No, I think all interesting things happen in hell. Even all Francesca da Rimini, all those heroes, and so on and so on. So no, I go to the end here. I want a Christian hell, my God. Not some stupid uh, primordial hell and so on and so on. Um, you are, I know we have a problem here, okay? Because you are a pagan, no? Yes. <laughs> so my punishment to you would be not you will be in hell, you will be in the most boring part of hell. Oh, yes. Well, that's, that's so, right. yes. That's, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, maybe. Um, we can connect this to a beginning point in uh, your lecture uh, when you refer to the Me Too debate and, and the discrepancy between the American and the French feminists. And here my question would be, is it not somehow telling that this uh, uh, discrepancy or this uh, disagreement uh, occurs between precisely American and uh, French women? Because Sorry, by French women, whom do you mean? Catherine Catherine de Neuve. Catherine was attacked also in France, you know. Yes, okay. yes, okay. But still, I mean, uh, a considerable number of, of feminists uh, wrote this or signed this paper. And what I observe, I think, can be expressed in the distinction made by Emile Durkheim. He, in his sociology of religions, he distinguished between positive and negative cults. And he said, for example, in some religions, at some celebrations, you have to eat abundantly and drink a lot. And in other religions, you have ritual, negative rituals of avoidance where you don't have to eat and don't have to drink and so on. And I think this occurs today in many conflicts on the level of everyday life. And as Max Weber has taught, uh, religious positions also translate into matters which don't seem immediately of religious nature. So I think, for example, uh, when a colleague in France wears nice shoes, you have to immediately tell him or her a compliment. That's a positive ritual. In America, if anybody at all dares to wear nice shoes in, in the office, uh, you must not say anything and act as if you hadn't seen it. And is there not a kind of battle going on uh, coming from the Protestant Northern American side that tries to convince us that negative rituals are always preferable. It's always better to act as if you hadn't seen the other or uh, as if the other were not there. Whereas a kind of, let's say, pagan heritage of French or Italian culture tries to teach us it's always nicer to engage in a positive ritual, to say something, to be polite, and, and to form a kind of positive social bond. Uh, would you interpret it? This no, conflict I, 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 along these lines? No, I, my problem is only this one. This may surprise you because often I'm decried as just against political correctness. No, the goals are right for me. For me, the problem with me too is that they are not really radical enough. They don't address the causes and so on, or even the forms of true violence and so on. That's enough. So I think that. As I said at the beginning, uh, this, all this debate, are they going too far or not? Uh, me too. 
should not blind us for the fact that a big tectonic shift is happening. Really, a shift of in something that was automatically assumed as our everyday value, uh, attitude towards women and so on, which was going on maybe for thousands of years. Something tremendous is happening, and I totally support it. It's just the way it's caught in this legal legal uh, legalism or other problems that I disagree. So, the way I read it, this Catherine Deneuve and others letters, it's a uh, I don't like the whole conceptualization, which is they are too Puritan, they go too far, we should find some middle of the road. No, my position is not middle of the road. My position is go much more to the extreme. You know what I mean? Like, uh, 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 this Me Too just reproduces at many levels certain, even conservative and so on stances, which is why it may surprise you. I spoke with some Arab friends who triumphantly support me too. They claim, but that's what we are saying. That's why women should be covered, that they are not objectified, reduced to male gaze and so on and so on. No, I, I, uh, and also, Again, I'm deeply suspicious of this, uh, this mixture of legalism and moralism. Here we agree. On the one hand, all this obsession with contracts and so on. On the other hand, this reference to some authentic experience. I mean, if we learn something, I'm not a Deleuzean, but Gilles Deleuze said something years ago. He said, any politics based on a unique, like, no, I am a lesbian single mother with AIDS. Nobody can even understand how I feel. This is catastrophe for me. Why? Because if nothing else, in a quite justified way, a white racist will tell you, but do you know how traumatic it is for me to be close to a black guy or to a Jew? And I met some of them, they're among my relatives, unfortunately. And I don't think you can simply say, but they are not authentic or whatever. It's not as simple as that. I mean, you know, so, uh, uh, also, uh, uh, again, uh, uh, it should not be at the level of feelings or unique experience or whatever. Because, you know, the way I would have proceeded as a Me Too feminist, I would say, let's find allies among also exploited men. In the sense that uh, we women are castigated in a certain passive role and so on and so on. But men are not simply enjoying their domination. The male domination is the way the system bribes them, because, you know, it's always intelligent strategy to a mid-level slave to give him someone that he can then oppress and so on. And to address, to, to convince men that they're terrorizing women is not true authority, it's act 
acting out something that enables them to live with their impotence and so on. I mean, social impotence and so on. It's absolutely crucial. Also, everybody knows this. Do you know, for example, in contemporary crisis with uh, unemployment, precariousness, and so on and so on, the other part of subordination of women is men as a breadwinner and so on and so on. How traumatic it is for men not to be able to provide and so on. The most tragic example is in India, Bengal, where now uh, many individually owned farms are bought by big companies and so on. The point being that tens of thousands of farmers, out of this shame that they cannot provide for their family, are making serially suicides and so on. And uh, to ask all these questions, not, I mean, we should expand also violence against women. For example, our own forms of violence. And then, not just, don't talk to me just about uh, uh, Muslims. Let's talk about, for example, I heard this from my friend there, South Africa. You, you know that uh, in South Africa, it's not only the rape capital per capita in the world, they have also now a specific crime which is becoming ritualized. It's a permanent form to kill a woman, strangle her, cut her, while you rape her, and so on. It's uh, so much of this violence. You know what's the key for me, how to approach this? It's clear also from studies in Mexico where there is a lot of violence against women that this, this, are, this is basically done by men who are horrified at the loss of their power and who fear feminine emancipation and so on. I think that it's crucial to expand the horizon in this way. And this is exactly what me too are not doing. I don't like this focus on, nonetheless, relatively privileged women, you know, for example, that Rose McGowan, you know. Okay, she could have said to Harvey Weinstein, fuck off, I will find a mother's job somewhere else. Okay, it's cynical to say this. But what's not cynical is that what about millions of women who don't have this chance? who are on a daily basis, not you meet a boss who wants to fuck you, not on a daily basis terrorized and so on and so on. And all this, at this level we should oppose, I think, me too. Not for, not in this Catherine Benet way, oh, but we like to flirt, they went too, too far and so on or whatever, you know. I'm sorry, I'm losing time. But maybe we should allow the people. Yes, do we have a microphone in, in for the audience? I cannot. <laughs> Super. You know what I would really like to do, but we are not at this level. This will be a true, I hope we agree, philosophical term, that I talk and then you have to guess to what question I was answering. <laughs> I give the answer, you ask me a question. That would be something, but you are not yet right. For <laughs> <laughs> we could try, Slava. You give an answer and we try if anybody can guess it. Too cruel for that. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, do we have. Uh, yes, I see somebody in the 
left side, please. Okay. Um, yesterday we were talking about how Lubitsch was going to Moscow and was really astonished about all the people. But James Carney was saying this, I think. Oh yeah, um, about how he was astonished that the people were actually believing that they were creating something new. And it reminded me of an article that was published about the uh, Soviet intellectual uh, Mikhail Prishkin. And in, in one of his diary entries, he observed that there was actually class struggle in Soviet Russia, but um, that pessimism and doubt was uh, prohibited under law because of the delusion that they are creating something. And I would ask you if you would agree that there is analogy to political correctness that when we prohibit certain words when we talk to each other or when we prohibit to show certain images that we are creating um, better atmosphere, that we feel better to each other and something like that. Generally, I accept this analogy only. I would like to talk with Lubitsch here, but one cannot. Because I, I think in so-called authoritarian or totalitarian things, the, the real situation is much more ambiguous. Look, years ago, I read, I fought my way through this horrible book, maybe Hitler was a good speaker, but not writer. And I read it with a simple question in my mind. Did Hitler believe in what he was saying or not? And the answer is clear and un unambiguous. Yes and no. That is to say, on the one hand, he plays his cards openly. He says how you should lie, how to repeat, you know, he shows the cards of his manipulation. At the same time, you can palpably see how at some point he starts, you describe this like, he falls into his own game. And I think it was the same in under Stalinism. It wasn't simply did they believe or not. Even the top nomenclatura, and this is my own experience in my own country. Sorry for boring you with this, but let me tell you another almost Lubitian experience that I had, had as a young communist youth uh, 40 years ago or what. Uh, Slovenia is a small country, so we were lucky for us, general secretary of the country, but not the one, the one who, whom you see uh, on, in a car once a year. You could even meet him on the street. So I was there forced to be at the speech of this communist leader, at that point secretary, who gave a speech to us young communists, and he concluded with the point that you should never forget Marxist theory, that a good communist should read both books of Marxist capital and follow the fourth thesis of Feuerbach. Philosophers shouldn't only interpret the world, also change it. Then, after the talk, my God, I was so stupid, I approached him and said, Comrade General Secretary, I just want to prevent embarrassment for you. But you know, there are three volumes of Capital, and it thesis 11. I got the, my a lesson of a lifetime. He told me, you didn't get it. I know this, but that was my point. I don't care. <laughs> you know how uh, it was part of the system not to take its own ideology seriously. But again, it wasn't that they were simply cynical. If you were to question them seriously, 
They would say, okay, forget about ideology, but nonetheless, look, we are developing the country, we are maybe in a rough way, do, we are doing something serious, and so on and so on. And I think you would have got something similar uh, from uh, Stalinist leader. Stalin despised incredibly people who argued with seriously quoting Lenin, Marx, or whatever. What mattered to him is Russia should be developed, the party should keep power, or whatever. So it, uh, it, this typically Western enigma, do they, do they believe it or not? It's too simple for the complexity of so-called totalitarian, uh, so-called totalitarian regimes. I'm, and here brings us to another point, humor. And, uh, I didn't have time to develop it, but that's what is important, what you, James, or, or, and also Volker already pointed out. Lubitsch is not, uh, and Billy Weiberg, they are not cynicists. They, it, it means they were well aware that humor as such is ambiguous. You know where I discovered this? And Mladen Dolar, who is also here, my friend, drew attention to it years ago. You remember 30 years ago when the big hit was uh, Umberto Eco, Name of the Rose. I don't think there is a book more theoretically wrong than that one. That the power is horrified by laughter. Eh, it depends what kind of a laughter. Absolutely every totalitarian regime has its own inner jokes. You make fun of the stupid people whom we are oppressing and so on and so on. <laughs> Laughter. And, and even this was one of my formative experiences when I was not a big dissident, but I was involved in some half dissident activities. And I remember late 80s we had a meeting and how they were intelligent. Those in power how they tried to disrupt our meetings. Not that a politcommissar came and shouted at us, are you aware that you are destroying socialism or whatever? No. By sending provocateurs who tried to disrupt, uh, for example, once there was a political prisoner who came to our group and was telling what, how they questioned him, the brutalities. And somebody who Later we discovered he was a police provocateur, started dirty gestures, ha ha, did you enjoy it, and so on. You know, this, or oh, all politics is a whore, if we come to power it will be even worse, and so on, and so on. So, uh, we, how dissidents, were talking seriously. Those who spoke for power were engaged in, in dirty jokes, and so on. This is why, there was a myth which is wrong, but there is a truth in it. You know that in almost every socialist country, there was a myth, maybe you here, ex you, that there were an exception, that the myth is a beautiful myth, is that there is an ultra-secret department of Stasi or whatever, where they are fabricating political jokes. Not jokes against the West, but against their own leaders. The idea was that in this way, jokes also play a positive, constructive role. It relaxes people, they laugh, they drink beer, they tell jokes and they leave you alone, you go on. 
the ruling elite, at least in Yugoslavia, was extremely afraid of people who took the existing ideology seriously. They were already, for them, a first step towards dissidence. And that's my Lunichian view, just one story, about ex-Yugoslavia. For example, I loved the 80s when it was a cynicism, era of cynicism. You remember, if you are old enough, Virgin Mary appeared in Metugorje, in Bosnia, Herzegovina. And Slovene communists who were more business-oriented and so on were furious at how the hardline Bosnian communists screwed it up. You know, they uh, tried to sabotage it, blah, blah. The result was that since we, Yugoslavs, didn't want to organize mass tourism, millions, Italians entered and earned billions of dollars. So then, in this time, a miracle happened in Slovenia, at a very right location between capital Ljubljana and the airport. Small crossing, a statue there, small of Virgin Mary, started to do what they are paid for, what they are supposed to do. Move a little bit, some uh, tears of blood and so on. Ah, we were different Slovenians. Immediately there were plans, wonderful, developed tourism, uh, hotels, it's wonderful. And then a catastrophe happened. The local priest in whose part this happens said, wrote in a religious uh, uh, weekly journal that no, this is not a true miracle, this is just superstition. Something historical happened. Then in the weekly, most official communist weekly newspaper, he was attacked for non-patriotic behavior. <laughs> like, my God, this is a miracle. It can bring billions to our country. We need it. And who is this priest to play some cheap materialism there? So, you know, this is how these things work. I mean, I, I was always fascinated by these ambiguities, and I learned from you here a lot. Like, we believe in something. What does it mean? Who believes it? Do we really believe it? And so on. Sorry for this. Thank you.